Amen. Well, hey, today, church, I am super excited to actually have um, Pastor Carter Mundy and his wife Tamara with us in the house. Could you put your hands together for them today and just welcome them with us? Um, we are super excited to, to have them as a church. You know, part of our mission is to be for Christ, for community, for the city. When we say for the city, we mean for Wilmington, but we also mean all cities. We believe that Jesus' movement, that the gospel movement, is not located uh, just to one specific city, but it's global. It's all over the world. And so uh, we have a vision as a church to uh, plant gospel-centered, multi-ethnic churches in our city and then around uh, the world um, through specific people who are called by God to go to specific places and to see the gospel continue to grow in those um, areas. It's been said, do what you do well for the glory of God, but also do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. What that means is that um, at this point, um, Carter and his, his, uh, his wife and their family, their team, there are 21 adults that are a part of their new team that are going to be moving to Roanoke to be a part of this new church plant. Uh, we are asking um, you to consider and to pray whether or not God would have you um, to be a part of their launch team and to move yourself or move you and your family to Roanoke, Virginia to help see the gospel um, go there and to change um, a city. That's actually how this began. You're sitting in a church right now in Wilmington, North Carolina, because a few dozen people decided to let go of things that were comfortable and to move to a city to see a new church started that would be gospel-centered and that would be multi-ethnic, that would reach the city that, um, where we find ourselves. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked. That's how the gospel always moves forward. And so today we're going to be um, challenging some of you to consider that and um, what God would have for you. And then there's even an interest meeting that's right after the 11 o'clock worship gathering um, that's here that we would love for you to be a part of and to come and just meet Carter and Tamara and to hear more information. It's not a commitment. It's just coming to learn more about what it would look like to be a part of their team as well. They've got magnets um, that you can put on your refrigerator um, that are awesome. It says, uh, pray for Carter and Tamara Mundy. Um, and then uh, has the picture of their family. Those are actually in the lobby. You could grab one today um, on your way out. Well, today, super excited um, to, to partner with them. Um, this is all possible. The reason that we get to partner with, with new churches and to fund them, we're sending thousands of dollars with them um, as they go to resource new churches. It costs money to start churches, by the way. Um, this is all possible because of our faith initiative. Um, back a few months ago, the Rooted Faith Initiative that allows us to be um, for um, our world and for our city. And so um, we are super excited. Carter and Tamara have three children. Um, Evelyn, who is five, Guinevere, who is four, and Bo, who is one year old. Um, they are crazy church planters are crazy. Who in the world plants a church and moves to a new city with a young family like that? Church planters do because they are crazy. But hey, without any more being said, would you put your hands together and welcome Pastor Carter as he comes and brings the word today. Well, guys, thank you for that. Man, that's really special. I don't know if you guys realize how special it is to be a part of a church like The Bridge that is willing to send both resources and ask you guys to go to a new place for the sake of the gospel. That's really special to me. So I'm just humbled and honored to be here to speak to you because of that. But I also wanted to share something with you that I think is really important that I share that's also special to me about The Bridge Church, and that's because with our second child, Guinevere, she's our four-year-old right now. Four years ago, we were on vacation while my wife was pregnant at Topsail, and she had a complication with the pregnancy with Guinevere, and we had to rush her down here, down the street to New Hanover Regional because it was the closest hospital around, and she stayed there for six and a half, almost seven weeks while she was pregnant with Guinevere, and I had Evelyn, 
And y'all, we're from Greensboro. I had to drive back to Greensboro, and I lived there the single dad life for about six and a half, almost seven weeks during the week, and I'd drive back on the weekends. But man, during that time, it was so, so awesome that we had a church here that we knew that we were connected to already because we, we helped plant the Bridge Church from Mercy Hill. Uh, how was it, five, six years ago? Five years ago now? That's so special because we, had, we knew we had a family here. And so we even had people, so Ethan went down and visited at least once, maybe more, and then uh, Rita Greep was there almost every week visiting Tamara, keeping her sane so that she had some human contact other than the nurses that were there, although all of her nurses were incredible too. So I just wanted to share that with you guys because that's really special to us that we have that connection. And there's, there's, just, there's just so many connections with you guys. So that's really humbling for me to be here. Um, but like Ethan said, we had 21 adults on our team right now. Um, they're all awesome. We have seven kids on the team as well. They're all under the age of six. Um, so I don't really count the kids that much, though, because they have to go, right? I mean, mom and dad have to go. The kids have to go. So, um, that, you know, But they're there. They're on the team. And, man, our team is great. I, I love our team. I hope you will consider joining us on that. But there is a risk involved when you plant a church, right? There's a risk. Our team is taking a risk to, to really just move their entire lives. They have to find new jobs, find places to live. There's a cost associated with church planting. Yeah, you guys know that too well here at the bridge as well. And so that's actually what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about the cost that's involved in building God's kingdom in the world, even when, if we're just looking at ourselves and being honest with ourselves, there are things that are really hard for us to give up. And so Jesus actually asked that of a rich young ruler in the Bible as well. I don't know if you guys, some of you all may remember this story out of Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10. It's the story of a rich young ruler that came up to Jesus and said, hey, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response was, well, you follow the Old Testament laws, and he listed off a bunch of things for the rich young guy. And the rich young guy was really happy about that when he heard Jesus' initial response, because he was like, well, man, I've done all that since I was a kid. Yeah, I, I grew up in a religious household. I went to religious school. I, do, I did all those right things. I, I feel pretty good about that. He's probably a nice guy. He's probably a moral person. You know? And Jesus said, yeah, that's good. But then Jesus does what he always does, and he flips it upside down on the guy, and he says, now, there's only one thing that you lack, or in the Matthew 19 version, it says, if you would be perfect, then you need to sell all that you own, and you need to go follow me. And what happened in the story? Well, the rich young guy went away sad because he wasn't willing to do that. It, Jesus was, in effect, saying to him, eternal life isn't a moral life. It's not about what you do. It's a sacrificial life which means you need to give up everything that you value. You're trying to gain something, but you actually need to give something up, Jesus is telling him. He said, God has given himself to you. Can you give yourself to him fully? You know, your dreams, your possessions, your future hopes, all of that, can you give it to God? Or are you willing to live on mission for him? Or are you trying to live your own mission? Are you willing to build his kingdom? Or are you trying to build your own kingdom? Yeah, and so what it boiled down to for the rich young guy was he just didn't see the value of what Jesus was offering him in that moment. He thought, yeah, you know what? My kingdom is better, you know? It looked like he would be giving up everything of value in order to get something of much less value in return. But guys, I think a lot of us are there today, if we're being honest with ourselves. Because I'm convinced that as American Christians, it's so ingrained in us from childhood that we have to value the successful life, the American dream, you know? Go to college, get the house, get the job, get the, get the family, all of that that we're rejecting God and what he is offering to us in our lives. And we, we might not even realize it. We might not even see it because of the culture that we're in. I'm convinced that many of us right now today 
maybe wrestling with that same thing that the rich young ruler was wrestling with when Jesus said, hey, you need to go sell all that you own and follow me. We think Jesus wants to take away from us in that, you know? When in reality, he wants to give us something of infinite value, infinite worth that we might not even realize. And so what I want to do today is just go ahead and give you the main point of this sermon at the very beginning because I think it gives us a lens through which we can understand Acts chapter 4. I'm so thankful that we read that entire text through. That's a, it's a marathon, right? Well, we're going to go through it again, but we're going to take it in bite-sized chunks. So we're going to take it in four sections today. And I think this main point is going to help give you that lens through which to understand it. And this is the thing that I think Luke, the author of Acts in Acts chapter 4, is trying to teach us. This is it. You ready? Jesus' followers build God's kingdom, not their own kingdom. That's, that's the whole thing that he's trying to get us to understand here in Acts chapter 4. And I believe that we're going to see that we can have everything that we think things like money and family and achievement and all of that can give us, but it can't come through those things, you see. It can only come through following Jesus and building his kingdom in the world, not trying to build our own. So let's go ahead and read the first section of Acts chapter 4 again, just so that we can understand the story, and then we'll talk about it. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests and the captain of the temple guard and some of the Sadducees, and these leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, they put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so that the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. All right, so I've dropped us right in the middle of the ongoing saga that is the New Testament church movement at the time, right? And after Jesus ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit has empowered the believers here in a new way, and now their spirit, His Spirit is within them. And they're living this out. They're living out what Jesus commanded them to do in Matthew chapter 10, where he said, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Peter and John, are the, they're getting it done here. They're doing that. And in chapter 3, right before this, they're getting ready to go into the temple when they hear a crippled guy ask them for money. And this is that time, some of you guys might remember this story as well, where Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but let me give you what I do have. And then he tells the lame guy to get up and walk, and the guy walks away who'd been lame for more than 40 years. Some of y'all might remember that story. Well, this is right after that in Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John go into the temple, and they're preaching the gospel, they're proclaiming the kingdom, and they see 5,000 men, probably more with women and children, get saved here. Now, whether that was all at once or whether it was over the course of a few days, that's still a lot of people getting saved all at once, right? I mean, that's every church planter's dream right there, that I go to Roanoke and we preach the gospel and we see thousands of people come to Christ, you know? I mean, people are hearing the message and they're coming to Christ, they're coming to faith, by the thousands. It's incredible. And sometimes I think what we do is we'll see that in the scripture and we're like, well, yeah, I mean, that was back then. That was the Holy Spirit, miracles, Jesus coming to, yeah, that was all then. But man, that just doesn't happen today. We, we don't see that. And I think what we need to do is step back for a second and say, no, no, no. We need to realize God is still doing this all over the world right now in our world today. God is still at work in the world building his kingdom. God is still at work in the world building his kingdom. In North Korea, the number one country on Open Doors' world watch list for Christian persecution, there are over 300,000 Christians in the underground church there and, and growing every day, every year. And God is still at work in the world building his kingdom, is he not? In China, 70 years ago, there were only about a million Christians, which in China is not a lot of people, right? But now there are 58 million and more, and some estimate that by 2025, get this, there's going to be over 160 million Christians in China. That's more Christians than are in the United States today. That's insane. God is still at work in the world building his kingdom. And in Iran, 
40 years ago, there were only probably about 500 Christians that had converted from Islam to Christianity. But today, there are literally hundreds of thousands of Christians there following Jesus, and some estimate over a million, and also growing. God is still at work in the world building his kingdom. And wherever there are Jesus followers, God will build his kingdom in the world. And, it, and it's important that we realize that in one sense, people are the kingdom. The way that I've heard you guys say it here, the way that we say it at Mercy Hill, the way that I'm going to say it at Redemption Church is that people are the mission because they make up the kingdom. And so I think it's important that we point out two things before we move on here. First, this is part of the joy that we get to experience as we build God's kingdom with him. It's the source of God's joy to call people into a relationship with himself. So it's the source of our joy as well. Because I, this, is, this is how I've been thinking about it for me. Seven years ago, my wife Tamara and I helped plant Mercy Hill Church out of the Summit Church from Raleigh-Durham to Greensboro. And we had to give up a lot of things. Our team had to give up a lot of things. There were about 30 people that came with us. It, it, was, it was hard. I wasn't in charge. I was just, we were just on the team, so we had to find jobs. We had to find places to live. And it was difficult. For probably a couple of years, we had to recover financially because there was some hardship there and some debt that we got into to try to get to Greensboro. It was difficult. And if you're looking from the outside in, it might have looked like we were giving up a lot. Things were being taken from us is what it looked like. But see, I look back over the last seven years at what God has done just around us. I don't even know that we've been a direct part of it. We've just gotten to see God work and save people's lives. And I look back and I think, I would not trade that experience for anything in the world because it's, I know people, I have friends who are not close to God who are now because Mercy Hill was planted seven years ago. I have people that I've been able to mentor who didn't know Jesus and now they do and they're living on mission for him. That is to my joy. It's for their good, yeah, but it's to my joy that I get to be a part of that. It's incredible to see that. So I know, and I know there are some of you guys here at the bridge who feel the exact same way because you have a similar story. You've gotten to see people who are far from Jesus come close to him because the bridge is here. That's the only way we heard that in the testimony. That's to our joy that we get to see that. So people are a source of joy for us in the mission. But then second, when we talk about building God's kingdom, this is just what we're talking about. It means sharing the gospel with people in the world. We're just sharing what we've seen and heard and experienced ourselves, just like Peter and John were doing here. So it's not complicated for us. You could say it like this if you're taking notes. We build God's kingdom by sharing the gospel with people and calling them to respond. See, Peter saw 5,000, maybe all at once here, respond to the gospel. What could you guys see over the coming year by sharing the gospel? Another way to ask, who's going to be your 5,000? Maybe for the church, maybe for the bridge church, maybe for you personally. Who's going to be your 5,000? Because, guys, there are people just waiting to hear the message that you have for them, to share with them. There are people just waiting to hear that. Jesus taught in Luke 10, too, that we should pray for more laborers in the field because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Few, right? But the harvest is plentiful, and so we need to pray for that. So if you're serious about praying, maybe you guys get out your phones right now and set your phone alarm to 10.02 every day to correspond to Luke 10, too. You know, I've done that. I was challenged to do that a few months ago, so I've started doing that. I actually I cut it off today so it wouldn't go off while we were preaching, but... Uh, but man, that's, that's been really helpful for me because maybe I take, you know, 20, 30 seconds to pray. Sometimes I pray a little longer if other people are around. But every time that alarm goes off, I get to pray and I cut it off and I say, God, please send out more labors into the field with us. Now, if you're real spiritual, maybe you set it for twice a day because you know it is 10.02 twice a day, right? I'm not that spiritual. I do it once a day in the morning. But man, I hope that is something that you guys can maybe bring in a part of your culture. I want that to be the culture of Redemption Church where we just pray that God would send more out because 
The laborers are few, but man, the harvest is plentiful. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to Roanoke to plant a new church, because 71%, listen to this, 71% of the population of Roanoke are unreached with the gospel. That, that just means that they don't have access to somebody sharing it with them directly. Yeah, they have the internet, they have books, they have Bibles they can go buy, but nobody has ever shared the good news with them. That's disturbing. In a, in a place where there are hundreds and hundreds of churches that have been there for years, and so we want to go and we want to be a part of God building his kingdom in Roanoke by simply sharing the good news, the things that we've seen, heard, and experienced with the people who are there. Now, why do we want to do that? Well, it's simple, because Jesus' followers build God's kingdom, not their own kingdom. That's why. And that's what Peter and John were doing here. And of course, it didn't sit well with the religious leaders. So let's look at verse 5 together. Let's take the second section. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. And they brought in those two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, I think there's a couple of things that we need to point out in this section. The religious leaders confront Peter and John because they didn't like what they were teaching, right? They, they crucified Jesus, so we know how they felt about him. They didn't want this message going any further. But Peter, finally using that pig-headed stubbornness of his for good, right? He, he confronts them all. He calls them out, and he says, hey, are we being questioned for doing a good deed for a lame guy that can't walk? Give me a break. This is not about that. What this is about is Jesus. Remember the guy that you crucified? He's the one that we're doing this in the name of. And and let me tell you, he's the only way that you guys can be made right with God. And guys, what I want us to see here in this passage about the religious leaders is that they were self-identified, God-following, religious, I go to church and do the right thing kind of people. But guys, they they missed something. They, They got it wrong here. What, what, what they were trying to do is have their cake and eat it too. Have you guys heard that saying? Have your cake and eat it too? It's actually meant to illustrate a logical fallacy. Let's see if we can just briefly explain this because sometimes it's confusing for, for people. They don't understand how it works. What it really means is that you can't both have your cake in your hand and also have it in your stomach at the same time. It's a logical fallacy. We get confused because we try to equate having your cake with eating your cake. But if you eat your cake, it's gone. You have it in your hand, you have it in your belly, you can't have it in both places at the same time. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay, some of you guys are like super confused about that. I just confused you even further, but you're welcome if you now understand it. So either way, that's what the religious leaders are trying to do here. They're, they're trying to understand God's kingdom in a certain way. They want his kingdom, and they want all of the benefits that come along with that and the promises that he's made to his people and everything, but they want to try to define what God's kingdom means for themselves. You see that? It's a logical fallacy. You can't do that. I, our kids do this all the time. Children do this every day. Now, we did this at the beginning of the cold season when it started getting cold in the fall with jackets. And I take our kids out, I take our girls out to go walk the dog. And so we went out and it was 30 some degrees one day. I was like, hey, you guys need your jackets. It's cold outside. And they're like, no, we don't want jackets. We don't need jackets. We're not going to be cold. You know, whatever. I don't know why they do this. Jackets are no fun, though, for some reason. And so they, they didn't want to wear the jackets to be the good dad that I am. I said, okay, 
you don't have to wear your jackets, you know? I, you do you, babes. You, you, let, let me live, let you live your truth out, okay? This is your truth. That's fine. You know, you live your best life now, and you go on out and do whatever you want. And so I said, okay, we get out there, and like five minutes in, I look over, and you know, they're like shaking, shivering, teeth chattering, you know? And it's just, it's funny because you're like, man, what, what are the links that we'll go to? They, they just bristle at this idea that they can't have it the way that they want to have it. They don't like being told what to do. They don't like the authority in their lives. And of course, I'm looking at them shivering over there, and you know, I'm like, hey, you're ready for that jacket now, right? You want to go back and get that jacket? My oldest, Evelyn, who's five, she looks over at me and she says, not cold, you know? <laughs> just, just totally flies in the face of reality. But it's laughable the lengths that we'll go to to try to define what we want in our lives, even to ignore reality and to ignore what's true. And I have to share this too, because this is ridiculous. Almost a couple of days later, it's it's so crazy. I heard them playing with their dolls, right? And my four-year-old says to my five-year-old, hey, where's your mommy? And she's playing with the dolls. And my five-year-old looks back at her with the doll and says, my mommy and daddy are dead. I can do whatever I want to do. And I'm like... I think, we got a, I think we got a deeper problem here. You know, I'm like, do we need to exercise the demons out of this? I, I really wrestle. Should I say something to her? Is this something I should engage in? Or did I just, you know, step... I chose not to say anything. I don't know if that's safe or not. We're going to have to keep our eye on our five-year-old. But I thought that was... Re- but it's the same exact thing. She doesn't want to be told what to do. And she's five. And it's amazing how we do the exact same thing with any kind of authority in our lives, but especially with God and his kingdom. And I'll tell you what, if we don't let God define what's best for us, we'll try and fail to define what's best for ourselves every time. Every, every time. We'll fail every single time. It's not possible to define heaven for ourselves. It's just not. It's a logical fallacy. Heaven either is what it is or it isn't at all. But it can't just be whatever we want it to be. That's not right. Now, we can use things like religion to try to build our own kingdom like the religious leaders did here in Acts chapter 4, and we can try to get in our own little imaginary world, build our own little imaginary kingdom and live the way that we want to live. That's what they did with religion here. But it could also look like using money for our own entertainment and our pleasure without considering at all how it's been given to us by God to steward for his kingdom, right? Or it could look like for us using our free time to indulge in things like TV and video games rather than to use our time to advance God's kingdom in the world. Or if we get a little more philosophical about it, it could look like us taking our American freedoms for granted and then making it all about us and our freedom and our lifestyle and our comfort rather than leveraging our freedoms that we do have to build up the kingdom around the world in places that don't have the freedoms that we have, right? We've got to be willing to ask this question, guys. Am I building God's kingdom or my own kingdom? Am I building God's kingdom or my own? Students, when you're thinking about schools to go to or majors to pursue or even what to do over the summer that you have this year, are you thinking about how you can leverage that time and that life stage in your, in your life for God's mission? Or are you thinking about your own mission that you've created for yourself? See, we have to ask because Jesus' followers build God's kingdom, not their own kingdom, right? Parents, are you raising your kids in a way that sends them out like arrows in the hands of a warrior? For the sake of God's kingdom, are you trying to control every part of their lives because you have future dreams of hope and success for them that don't include God's kingdom in those plans? See, we have to ask the hard question because Jesus' followers build God's kingdom, not their own, right? Professionals, are you leveraging your career for God's kingdom or are you just trying to build a business or a resume or climb the corporate ladder 
or whatever that looks like to fulfill the American dream, maybe. We have to ask because Jesus' followers build God's kingdom, not their own kingdom. And lest I leave anybody out, if you're an empty nester, a retiree, are you leveraging your life experience, your wisdom, your time to advance God's kingdom in the world? Are you spending all your time resting? You spending all your money trying to play and make yourself feel good because you feel like you've earned it, you know? See, we've got retirees and empty nesters, both of those things, on our launch team to Roanoke. Yeah, you can do something radical with your time as a retiree and as an empty nester. It's possible for you to do that. Now, the reason that they've done it is because they get it on our launch team. You, Jesus' followers build God's kingdom, not their own kingdom. That's the reason, right? And, and now, maybe you're saying, all right, geez, lay off just a little bit. Good grief, you know, it's getting a little heavy. Can God really use me? I don't, I don't feel like I'm important at all. And maybe that's where you're at. And I think you ought not get too down on yourself yet because look at what happened with Peter and John in verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. And they also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. They knew that they, they could tell that they'd been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? (laughs) They asked each other. We can't deny that they performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, propaganda, cancel culture here, right? Propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything that we've seen and heard. And the council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. Man, there's something radically different about how the disciples are acting now versus when Jesus was just crucified. You remember that? They were up in an upper room somewhere. You know, they were hiding. They locked the door. But now, what are they doing? They're out proclaiming in the public spaces, and they can't be stopped. There's this boldness that even the council understands that they now have because they knew that they'd been with Jesus, right? It's just coming out of them. It's who they are. And it was scaring these religious elite people because these fishermen from Galilee were taking them to school. And teaching them about the scriptures in a way that they didn't understand. And they were totally normal people. Totally normal. They'd never been trained in the scriptures. It said they didn't go to religious school. They didn't know all of these things. How could they do this? It was amazing because God takes regular people, regular Joes like these guys, who certainly weren't perfect, by the way, right? I mean, if we just look at Peter for crying out loud, I mean, he was he he denied Jesus three times, and he did a few other things in the scriptures that we could point at and say, What were you thinking, man? You know, he wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but that should be so encouraging to us because that's what God's spirit does to us when we put our faith in Jesus. It radically changes who we are and what we're chasing after with our lives so that we can say like Peter and John here, we can't stop telling others of what we've seen and heard and experienced in our own life. We just can't. It's just who we are now. A lion roars, a bird flies, a fish swims, and a Christian can't stop sharing about Jesus. It's just, it's my identity. And I love the 2020 vision that you guys have here to build the kingdom by seeing at least one person, maybe more, every worship gathering get baptized. That's incredible. I love that. But I'll tell you what, that's not going to happen unless you guys share, share your faith with people, right? That's not going to happen unless you guys tell people, hey, let me tell you what I've seen. Let me tell you what I've heard. 
Let me tell you what I've experienced. It's going to, be, it's going to boil down to you guys being able to share that because what I want you to see here, if you're taking notes, is that followers of Jesus become leaders for Jesus. And you don't have to be some super Christian to do that. You know, you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to have a degree in systematic theology. You know, that's not bad. Now, I don't personally have that, but it's not bad if you do. But you don't have to have any of that. You just have to know what Jesus has done for you and then be available to share it with those who are around you. That's it. Jesus' followers live on mission for God wherever they are. They can't not share what they've seen and heard. They can't be stopped. And the question that a Jesus follower always asks isn't, why would I share this with somebody? It's how could I not share it? How can I not share this information? And the question for us then ought to be, do we feel the same way about God's kingdom? Or are we missing something here? Are we missing something about it? Let's be honest. You know, I talked to somebody recently who is a nurse. They've been working as a nurse for many years. And you know, I don't want to get too down on this person, but I just want to give you the idea of somebody who maybe, maybe has missed something here. Because we're getting into a conversation, and I'm saying, hey, you know, do you, do you ever get a chance to share your faith? And they said, well, you know, I can't share my faith. I'm a nurse. They don't allow me to share my faith. So I poke and prod a little bit more, and I said, well, have you shared the gospel with anybody at your workplace, anybody that you work with, or anybody that you've served? And they said, no, I think they may know I'm a Christian, but, but I can't share my faith there. They don't allow it. I have to respect my authorities. And man, when I heard her say that, my heart sank for her. You know, because here's somebody who's probably very godly, follows Jesus in every other way, but who's probably missed something. You know, and again, I don't want to be judgmental here because when I heard her story as a nurse, I saw myself in her story. Because what she's done is she just, she's put the American dream over God's kingdom and she hasn't even realized it. So I'm not trying to condemn her, but I just want to make sure that we recognize we're not making excuses. Okay, this is an excuse because what we have to see here is that not sharing is just disobedience. It's just a disobedient heart. And I see myself there all the time. There are plenty of people that I know that I should have shared the gospel with that I can look back and say I was disobedient to do that. Now, I'm not going to share any with you because I don't want to feel bad up here. Okay, but man, we need to understand that that's where we are sometimes. And yes, we do have to respect our authorities. But listen, Peter and John couldn't help but share the gospel even when they were threatened by their authorities. They were threatened by their authorities. And they still couldn't help it. So we can be encouraged because if you and I have that same spirit in us, if you and I have been so changed by the gospel, if we see the infinite value of his kingdom in our lives, then guys, we can share the God. How could we not? How can we not? But we have to ask, are we hiding behind rules and regulations and things like that and making these excuses because we're scared for some reason? Because we have to understand that when we don't share, at worst, it's because we're ashamed of our Savior. And at best, it's because we're comfortable with remaining silent. And neither of those are a good place to be. We need to ask ourselves, am I ashamed to share Jesus with others? Am I ashamed? Do we need, to, we need to ask, I need to ask myself that because this is a struggle for me. And if we're not careful, we can fail to see how we place jobs, comfort, future, the American dream, maybe, over God's mission in our lives and we don't even realize it. 
It's probably one reason why academia has so, so become so secular and removed God from the full conversation or why the medical world is so flippant about the value of human life or why news media is so quick to spin the story rather than tell the truth nowadays. It's because Christians for years have just said, can't, I, I, can't, I can't be a part of that. They asked me not to. I can lose my job. You know what? God wouldn't ask me to do something like lose my job. Mm. And that's not right. That's just total disobedience. When we make these excuses, we're just like the religious leaders of Acts chapter 4, guys. We need to see that. We've rejected God's kingdom for a hollow replacement. And when we do that, we need to repent. We need, we need to repent and, and tell Jesus we're sorry because Jesus flat out tells us that if we're ashamed of him, he's going to be ashamed of us on the day of judgment. It's a serious issue and we need to understand that. When we make excuses, we've obviously forgotten the great beauty and joy that comes with seeing broken people made whole, right? Or marriages on the edge of destruction brought back from the brink, or addicts freed from the slavery to their addictions, or children brought into families and loved and cared for, right? Or people who are depressed and without hope, given a hope and a reason to live. Guys, sharing the gospel is the greatest thing that we can do for other people. But don't forget it's not just for their good. It's also for our what? Our joy, right? It's for our joy as well. We get to be a part of that. So let's not make excuses. And listen, I know some of you guys have gotten to experience that here. Some of you guys are being faithful. Some of you guys are sharing your faith with other people who are around you in your lives. And maybe even you, there's somebody sitting here today who's a Christian today because you shared with them. That is so cool that you guys have a culture of sending, a culture of sharing. Keep that up. Man, that is special, and it's not to be taken lightly. It should be encouraging to all of us, too, because we're just normal people here, right? We're just normal. God uses normal people to build his kingdom. And when we become followers of Jesus, we become leaders for Jesus. And thankfully, we have God's Spirit in us, who's the one actually doing that work on our behalf through us. And that's what was going on with the disciples here. They had that spirit. And let's finish out our text together, starting in verse 23. As soon as they were freed, Peter and John returned to the other believers and told them what the leading priests and elders had said. And when they heard the report, all the believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. Listen to this prayer. It's incredible. O sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, you spoke long ago by the Holy Spirit through our ancestor David, your servant, saying, Why were the nations so angry? Why did they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepared for battle. The rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And in fact, this has happened here in this very city. For Herod, Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant, whom you anointed. But everything they did was determined beforehand, according to your will, God's sovereignty over it all, right? And now, O Lord, hear their threats and give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Man, I love their prayer here, right? They didn't pray for people's needs to be met. They didn't pray for God to provide or even to protect, although none of that may have been bad to pray for. They prayed for what? Boldness. They prayed for boldness to share the gospel and for miracles to be done so that they could usher in the kingdom of God on earth. And here's the crazy thing. When they prayed for that, it happened. The Holy Spirit heard that. He filled them up, enabled them to go out and do what they had asked him to help them do. Y'all, if we're going to build God's kingdom, we need to do what they did. We need to pray for boldness. If there's one application point coming out of this sermon, it should be to pray for boldness. They went to battle against opposition 
by going to their knees and praying for boldness to share the gospel in the face of that opposition. That's where we ought to be every day, and that's what I'm praying for our church planting team. I'm praying that for our 21 adults, for our seven kids as they grow up in the faith, and I'm praying that for even more whoever else joins the team with us, because otherwise our hearts are going to go to our idols of comfort and security and trying to build that American dream every time unless God's Spirit is at work in our hearts, giving us a desire to build His kingdom. And I'm praying for more than 21 adults to come with us as well. I'm praying that God would be intentional to send us more people, maybe more college students, more minorities, because we want to be a multicultural church. We want to reflect the population of Roanoke there. And, and I, if I could just be direct, I want to see more black people on our team. We, we have people on our team who are African-American, but man, I'd love to see more because we want to be a part of reconciliation that needs to occur in the culture there in Roanoke. And I think that's just important that I put out to you guys there. So now, y'all knew that I was going to ask you to come to Roanoke with me, right? Okay, well, there it is. There's your ask. That, that's it. I hope you'll consider it. And yeah, it would mean leaving your home and your job. And maybe your family if you're from here. And certainly your church family if you leave the bridge. It would be hard. There would be risks. You would be leaving those things like our launch team is in Greensboro. I mean, they're doing that. But I don't want to downplay it. It's hard. It's hard. It may feel like you're having to give up everything. But if you understand the surpassing value of building God's kingdom, you're going to have everything that's worth having anyway. He's going to give it right to you. Life's not fundamentally about what you can get. It's fundamentally about what you can give. That's what he was trying to teach the rich young ruler. He was trying to teach him that knowing God, building his kingdom is better than anything that we could ever try to make up for ourselves. Isn't that what Jesus did for us when he left heaven? Jesus left the safety and security of heaven so that we could enter into his kingdom with him and be with him forever. That's what he did for us. And he risked it all. And he gave it all up for us. During their prayer, I don't know if you noticed this with the disciples, they, they quoted Psalm chapter 2, which is a psalm about God's enemies opposed to his anointed king, the Messiah. But see, we're all enemies of Jesus. We have to understand it wasn't just the religious rulers and all those people that he was talking about, Pontius Pilate and all of that. We're the ones that reject his authority. We're the ones that try to build our own kingdom. We want to define heaven for ourselves. We want to have our cake and eat it too, Right? But Jesus, the Messiah, the true king, never once gave in to the temptation to build his own kingdom apart from God. And he lived the perfect life that we all should live but don't. And then he humbled himself to die in our place and took the judgment that we deserve for our treason against the true king of the universe. He took that on himself. But he didn't stay dead, did he? Jesus didn't stay dead. He defeated death as a triumphant king through the power of the Holy Spirit and rose from the dead so that one day we can all raise from the dead with him by that same spirit, by that same power. We have that in us. But then finally and ultimately, he's going to usher in the kingdom of heaven on earth and we get to be a part of that. It's the same good news, guys, that radically changed those 5,000 people or more in Acts chapter 4. It's the same good news that Peter and John fought to proclaim. It's the same good news that's radically changing hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of people around the world today. And it's the same good news that can change you if you put your faith and hope in Jesus as your true king. It's the same good news. And listen, as I conclude our time together today, some of you guys may not be Christians here. I don't know you all. And so if that's you, I'd urge you to put your hope in Jesus and enter into his kingdom rather than trying to build your own. Isn't it exhausting? Isn't it frustrating to try to pursue after success and joy and all of these things, but never quite being able to get there on your own? You're trying to define your own authority. You're trying to define your own kingdom and you're in your own little world. 
And I'll tell you what, Jesus is the only way to break out of that. That's what Peter and John were proclaiming here, and that's what I'm proclaiming to you today. He's the only one who can give you that joy and that satisfaction. So turn to him today and join his mission to build his kingdom in the world, not our own. But if you're a Christian today, maybe you need to reflect on how you've been tempted to build your own kingdom rather than building God's kingdom. I know that that's something I've been... This has wrecked me. This has wrecked me trying to to think about this and preach on this. Maybe you as a Christian need to figure out how you need to put your yes back on the table. You know? Have you put your yes on the table? Is it still there? Maybe you need to check yourself. Maybe to think of ways today that you can start living on mission for God. What needs to change about your daily schedule, your routine, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what major you're in if you're a student, what job you're pursuing, what hobbies you maybe even have, or maybe even, yeah, what city you live in, yeah, if you want to come to Roanoke. Because you know that you've been thinking about your kingdom more than God's kingdom. It could be something small, it could be something radical, but whatever it is, let's enter into that joy that God has for us and not miss the value of building his kingdom instead of our own because God uses ordinary people like Peter and John, like you and me, to build his kingdom. And it's so amazing that we get to participate with him. He's still working in the world to build his kingdom. And let me end by telling you the story of an ordinary guy who God used this through in communist Russia, 1950s communist Russia. Some of you guys may have heard the story if you've read Nick Ripkin's book, The Insanity of God. He tells the story of a guy named Dmitry who was a Russian house church pastor in the 50s, right during the time of the USSR, during the time of communism, atheism, and all of that. And to make a long story short, he was an ordinary guy, didn't think he was going to be a pastor, but the authorities found out and put him in jail. And he was there in prison for 17 years apart from his family. And every day he said he would get beaten and mocked and tortured for his faith, but he stayed faithful those 17 years. And he said there were two main things that he did to stay faithful. He said he would find scrap pieces of paper on the ground every once in a while, and so he would take that and write a scripture verse on it. And he would write that scripture verse so that he could remember and meditate on it. He would paste it up in his cell, and then they would come in and rip it down and beat him and spit at him and do all kinds of other things to him. But he did that every day that he found that. And then the second thing that he did was stand next to his bunk every morning and raise his hands to God and sing what he called a heart song of worship to God in order to proclaim the gospel to his prisoners in order to meditate on God's goodness and the surpassing value of God's kingdom. And so he did that every day for 17 years, and he remained faithful until one day, 17 years in, for whatever reason, they came in, the guards came in and gave him a hard time. They were, they were doing whatever, and they said, hey, we killed your family. We killed your wife. Your kids are scattered throughout. They all recanted their faith. Why don't you just do the same thing and sign the paperwork that says you won't believe in Jesus anymore? And for whatever reason, Dimitri said he just got so down that day. And, and it broke him. And he said, you know what? I've got to figure out what happened to my family. I, I'll, I'll sign whatever you want. And they said, okay, well, we'll come back in the morning with the paperwork. And so that night, Dimitri was just weeping because he didn't know what had happened to his family. But he was also weeping because he was about to deny his Savior, the Savior that he'd been faithful to for 17 years and who had been faithful to him for those 17 years. And he was so distraught over that. But something incredible happened. Listen to this. Dimitri was sitting there and all of a sudden, He said he heard these voices surrounding him, and he started recognizing them, and he knew immediately they were his wife and his children and some of his other extended family. And what had happened was the supernatural God of the universe was allowing him to hear the prayers of his family who, thousands of kilometers away, sensed his need for their prayers, and they all got together in a circle in the living room. 
And they started praying for Dimitri, and Dimitri said it was as if he was sitting in the middle of them, hearing them pray. And so the very next morning, when the guards came in with the paperwork, they said, you ready to sign? And he said, no, I'll never, I'm not going to sign that paper. You lied to me. My family is still alive. They're still following Jesus. The supernatural God of the universe allowed me to hear their prayers last night. I'll never deny my Savior. And the guards said, well, we're going to kill you. And so that day, they took him out and drug him through the hall to be shot in front of a firing squad. That day. And as they were dragging Dimitri through the hall, he said something incredible happened. He said that the entire prison, 1,500 prisoners, all atheists in Russia, they miraculously all raised their hands and started singing Dimitri's heart song of worship to the God of the universe. And the guards dropped Dimitri in the hallway and said, who are you? And this was his response. He said, I am the son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. And he didn't deny his Savior that day. And they let him go free. After 17 years of long, hard obedience, Dimitri got to go free because he had been faithful. But listen, guys, the beautiful part about Dimitri's story is that he was already free because he knew the surpassing value of proclaiming the gospel and living for God's kingdom, not his own. And what I want to tell you guys and encourage you all today is that may that be us in the American church today. May we put away our idols. May we put away the American dream and all those things that hold us back from seeing the value of what God is trying to offer to us. Let's take up that freedom. Let's take up that joy that he wants to give us. And let's live for God's kingdom and build his kingdom in the world not our own. So let me pray for you guys.